Hey guys, welcome back to another industry podcast of the Echo Podcast. I'm Keith and I'm joined here by Amanda. Hello. And we're both part of the CCSOC media team. Today we're joined by a very special guest from Canva's data engineering team, who I'll let introduce himself. Hi, um, yeah, I'm Nick. Uh, I'm uh, at Canva as a, as a data engineer as of uh, February or so. Um, uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show. So... To start off, why don't you just explain to us what exactly is data engineering and how is it different from something like data science or information systems? Um, I mean, it's they're all sort of converging, I guess, as, as things progress. But really, like the difference for me, I guess it's easiest to differentiate with data science. Uh, data scientists are typically the ones doing um, the sort of exploratory machine learning and like prototyping uh, machine learning models um, for use in everything from search to recommendations and even things like automated help uh, in, inside applications. Now, those models typically need to be integrated with some sort of larger infrastructure in order to get them ready for use with systems with, I don't know, millions of users like Canva. Um, so, as data engineers, we provide a couple of different pieces of infrastructure. We provide the integration with the final system, but we also are responsible for maintaining that system. So things like Kubernetes clusters in which the, the training jobs run on, uh, maintaining the, the infrastructure through infrastructure as code, um, using things like Terraform. Um, so that's, that's our responsibility. Our job is to sort of free up the data scientists to do their work, which is sort of finding where the magic or the, the machine learning or the AI can be most valuably integrated into the system. Uh, so, so would you say it's more like data engineering is the implementation of the things that the data scientists come up with or? I mean, uh, a lot of the time, like that they built this prototype system, it, it works in its entirety. Um, it just, it just needs to be productionized or made so that it can scale or integrated with an existing system of uh, uh, basically we try to standardize we're, we're the standardizing agent to take all of these models and be able to provide them reliably um, so we, we want to be able to do more than just provide sort of one-off training and uh, what, what they call inference in data science where you're interpreting results or like inferring results from these these models that you've trained we sort of take those models and a lot of the time are helping the data scientists wrap them up in a server that can integrate with canvas system and respond like any back-end service to calls from uh, the, the front-end UI or um, scheduled jobs to um, sort of populate results that might be shown to the users, um, that sort of thing. Okay. Oh, okay. What interested you most about becoming a data engineer? Um, I, got, I got exposure to a little bit of data engineering when I interned at Canva um, in 2019, 2020, and I guess the big thing for me was that well i guess there are a couple of things first that that facilitation role where like you're empowering these people to do their best work and you're providing this system that people are going to rely on that that was very attractive but also the fact that you get to play with very exciting technologies so the the technologies that you use to deal with 
data of the scope and scale that a company like Canva is trying to use. Um, the, those tools are very exciting and they're very difficult to justify running on personal projects or anything outside of that very large scale industrial context. So some of those some of those tools are provided by AWS. Some of them are you, you spin up yourself, like the, the Kubernetes uh, cluster, for instance. Um, it's very cool how that all works, but it's a little bit difficult to justify on an individual scale. Um, so getting to work with that technology and empowering people with that technology was the best of, that I could see, the best thing that I'd experienced as, uh, as a software engineer. Can you take us through some of these tools? Like what sort of things? Um, so, I mean, they, they, they kind of run the gamut. They used to be all sort of clustered under this, this title of big data, but big data has really become data for most organizations. Very few people are working with uh, little, little data. And so uh, things like processing massive batch jobs over uh, hundreds of millions of lines of data um, using uh, AWS services like AWS uh, Elastic MapReduce, so basically this sort of uh, automated cluster management that takes things like um, Apache Spark and uh, basically handles all of the uh, parallelization and spinning up clusters and, and completing these jobs for you. Um, that's very cool. I mean, the, the, the workflow software that we use, um, so uh, technologies like Argo um, or alternative implementations like uh, Airflow, which was developed by Airbnb and is now another Apache project. Um, these these tools are just like very cool and very um, like they, they were designed to solve these big big data problem uh, problems. I, I I try not to use the buzzwords the 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 big data the leaning on the ML um, because. Realistically, when it gets down to it, um, particularly on the data engineering side, a lot of it is just plain old software engineering. And it's software engineering for, like, in, in the best context, because you're dealing with, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, you're dealing with internal customers. So the people that you are dealing with know how technology works. You can sort of skip over that introductory sort of stage where you're worrying it, that they don't understand or you're worrying that you're being too condescending, you, you, you skip that because they're also engineers. Um, on the topic of big data, which I know buzzword, <laughs> but what do you think the future of data engineering is going to be like, with regard, especially with regards to something like big data? I think uh, companies are naturally collecting, even if they're not data focused, Canva is trying uh, to be data focused and is and has historically been uh, very data focused. So we've gone out of our way to um, make sure that we're collecting data that will help make our product better. That we can sort of feedback. We we create these these feedback loops where um, things that users use like will feed into a model that suggests things that are like that thing that they've used and it. It just becomes part of this process of things that you don't really notice without looking back at them. So uh, at Canva, we have this this concept of bringing the magic, or um, so some people phrase it a little bit more uh, aggressively. But it's the, the the concept of just making every interaction possible better with the data that we have now. 
we we have a very strong sort of uh, ethical process around data. Um, the any personally identifiable information is scrubbed from the data um, at the absolute soonest point that it can be after we've like I don't know charged your credit card. Like all of that is kept as safe as possible, and the machine learning is just done on um, the the things that aren't necessarily. Uh, unique to a person so it's sort of aggregated over a bunch of people um, and we use that to to train uh, interactions so everything that you interact with uh, in Canva um, that seems just the tiniest bit smart probably has some ML in it so when you go and search for things or when you do something like uh, automatic resize all of that is powered by this data that we've collected and the, the models that we've trained and put into production. We have dozens of these little integrations, everything from, yeah, like I said, search or recommendation to uh, even uh, how you're provided help on the site, um, all sort of made better by data. And I think that's, I think that's the trend that we're going to see across the industry is that we, people have been gathering this data for years, sometimes even decades, and they haven't really been putting it to use because they, they didn't know how or they didn't have the talent or whatever. But I think as as the, the the skills that like machine learning or AI evolve and propagate through particularly the student community, we're going to see more and more of this sort of uh, magic being brought to everyday interactions because people have an expectation for that now. You when, when people do search, they're expecting sort of Google quality search they're not uh, like the, they and they feel it. They feel the pain when when that quality isn't there. And for a lot of sites or platforms or programs or whatever, uh, the the search is made smarter, more made more accessible by historical searches and machine learning. Yeah, that's pretty surprising because when you think of data, you're kind of always thinking of like user data or like customer analytics and things like that but just hearing about how it's used in like all these other little details just to make the experience better is honestly really cool so can you take us through an average day of work for you so what are some typical tasks or responsibilities you have in your role um so my work at canva has been pretty varied um mostly because like uh, I, I'm part of what was the data platform and tools team. Um, we, we recently changed to the ML platform team because we, we recognized that the vast majority of our work was going into facilitating ML. So we're sort of handing off the more traditional responsibilities and taking on more of the ML-related uh, facilitation. So uh, for me, I... Uh, might work on things like our data lake. So we, we maintain, uh, in order in order to make use of this information, we have to kind of store it somewhere. Um, and the, the problem with uh, wanting to keep all of this data is that it gets huge and it gets huge quickly. So our, um, our data lake uh, is something on the order of 15 petabytes. Um, and you have to treat big data like that uh, in a special way in order to optimize it and in order to best make use of it. So uh, we use uh, software called Delta Lake and we store things in AWS, but we have to sort of uh, iterate over that and 
um, maintain a bunch of workflows that go through and optimize or clean out old things or um, even just process the data and hand it off to our other data storage system, uh, a data warehouse, where it's made more accessible by other data engineers for users in uh, business analytics or um, the, the data scientists as well uh, at various levels of abstraction. So I've um, done things like uh, running backup operations, so like testing that we can recover from failure um, on, on uh, the version of our data lake that runs in China. Obviously, there's different data sovereignty issues around that. Um, I've uh, worked on some of those workflows that change the, the data in the lake. I've worked a little bit on uh, a hosted notebooks platform that we maintain. So we, uh, if you've ever used a Jupyter notebook, that kind of thing, uh, we, we run an, an internal version of that. It's hosted and gives data scientists mostly uh, the access that they need to cloud hardware. So you might get a what we call a small instance, which has 30 gigabytes of RAM and seven CPUs. And that facilitation um, enables so the environment, the that those notebooks run in gives them access like first class access to the data lake and anything they need in terms of data that they uh, might want to develop a model or um, in, uh, iterate on an existing one so i've worked a bit on the notebook service um, and sort of just little helper functions in and around there um, i've written some wrapper libraries for our data science monorepo. Monorepo is a big at Canva. We use uh, a, a tool developed, was formerly an internal Google tool called Bazel. And we we use that to manage our monorepos and, and build uh, nice little artifacts and images to uh, to work on. But I've yeah, written, written uh, and contributed to some small libraries around AWS functions, so things like S3 access or uh, writing to uh, their SQS queuing service, uh, because a lot of our workflows use queues uh, in order to process their work. What would you say is hard about working with such large amounts of data? I think it, it just, it subverts every expectation that you have going into it. Like you, you, you you have this mental model of how data works coming out of university. Like your, your assignment might be able to just integrate an entire data set. You just read the entire thing into memory because it's only like it's a 1.1 megabyte file with some uh, statistics in it or something. You can't get away with that anymore. Um, you have to use special tooling and things break in unexpected ways, which for me is, is part of the interesting thing about this kind of space is that there's been a lot of work done to abstract around it, but if something goes wrong, then you sort of have to be able to dig through the different levels of abstraction in order to, to work out what's going wrong and why. And even then, like sometimes it's just too hard and the pragmatic route is finding a different tool. Um, isn't always an option, but um, is an option some of the time. And I guess so uh, I guess, for instance, at the data lake, you can't you can't store 15 petabytes of data in uh, a database table anymore, or even hundreds of database tables. It's just not going to work because the database software will just fall over. 
um, particularly when you look at how many people are trying to access that data simultaneously as well as just the sheer size of it. Um, so you do different things. You, you uh, store it as sort of individual blobs and the blobs might be a couple of gigabytes each and then you have this abstraction layer that sits over the top and you call to the abstraction layer when you want the data and it works out where that data is supposed to come from in those blobs. Um, so I think, yeah, it's just that the access and challenging those initial assumptions that you have, you get you get used to it reasonably quickly. So what would you say is the most rewarding thing about your job? I, I think it's the, the facilitation side of things, just, just empowering people to do this work that uh, might not be possible or certainly wouldn't be as easy without our help. Um, and the, the, the data organization inside Canva is like 100 people strong now. Um, so when I do things like at, at the moment, like when we maintain a central platform for doing ML and when you do things as simple, well, I say simple, but there's a lot, there's a lot of sort of complex factors that play into it. But when you do things as simple as uh, updating the like the version of PyTorch that we're running uh, on, on the central platform, like people notice and people like people are thankful, even even because the data space moves so quickly, even uh, 18 months worth of upgrades uh, could mean the world to a data scientist um, trying to get something done. And they know that this tool exists, but because of uh, th this concept of keeping a central platform is so important to getting things done um, and like being able to debug issues and fix mistakes and deploy things reliably, um, there, there's a trade-off there. And sometimes that trade-off hurts. So you can, being able to deal with these uh, internal customers and sort of, I guess, uh, empower them and even sometimes surprise them um, with uh, little things like that is, is really rewarding. So um, how do you learn yourself? Uh, a role as a data engineer so like you know what skills do you need and what type of courses should you take in uni look i i think that given given that there is at least at canva there is uh, a significant amount of on the job training um, and that the, the tools uh, you you tend to learn the tools for a month or two at the beginning and probably continuously after that as they change and evolve but if you if you have the skills for uh, being a backend engineer, you know how to like if you know how to work with databases and you've you've run things in Jupyter notebooks and you you understand sort of how to push data around. Um, I I think that you can you can learn what you need to um, at Canva. We don't or haven't historically hired directly for data engineers. Data engineers have been hired through the backend engineering pipeline. Um, that, that may change in the future as, as everything gets bigger and we have the, the resources to become more specialized in our hiring. But realistically, um, a, a lot of it is, is tooling that you, it's very difficult, like I said in the beginning, it's very difficult to learn or practice that kind of stuff on your own. I mean, you can, if you're really motivated, you can go and play with Apache Kafka or um, Spark or whatever. Um, and some people do just for fun. Um, but in my experience, it's not necessary. In terms of 
courses to take. I mean, take take your database courses. Some of it uh, will be more useful than others. Like having a grasp on SQL is handy. It's again nothing that you couldn't learn in a pinch if you needed to. But I think the the most relevant course that I've taken at UNSW so far, like to like that's been most related to my job was uh, Comp nine three two one. Um, which has changed names over the over the last couple of years, but uh, I think it went from like web application to like data services engineering or something to that effect. Um, but like it gets you across Jupyter notebooks, it exposes you to a bunch of uh, like data munging issues, which do come up particularly uh, when you're like helping out or like writing these sort of workflows from scratch. Uh, but it also gives you a really fast run through of all of these different ML models. At least it did it, it did last term, um, and I think yeah that that kind of experience uh, having worked with AWS uh, and just played around with AWS. The other I guess the, the the big thing that I felt that I was lacking when I started, and Canva's been really good about supporting uh, learning on the job. So, like, I'm I'm undergoing Terraform certification at the moment. Terraform is uh, infrastructure as code that you can uh, specify. You, you just type in, I want an S3 bucket, and I want uh, an EC2 instance or an EMR cluster or whatever. You just write that down, and then you press or type in Terraform apply, and it goes and spins all of that stuff up on your AWS. Um, the infrastructure, um, I guess, is something that I didn't emphasize as much, but it's it's really important to what we do. I spent a lot of time coming to grips with Terraform and provisioning resources and changing uh, how things are provisioned, because again, that's that's part of that facilitation. So it means that a lot of the time uh, we can we can save the data scientists from having to do that particular part of the work and let them sort of focus on working their statistical magic um yeah so um what are some like other resources you use to uh learn about data if you're not working with data in your courses or personal projects i think uh what's what's considered the bible for like what we do is a book called designing data intensive applications it's a book by uh, martin Kleppmann. Um, and I think the subtitle is something like the big ideas behind reliable, scalable, and maintainable systems. Uh, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I'm uh, only three quarters of the way through it, but it's a brilliant book. And I think really, really helps in this kind of area. Um, the other thing I think would be leaning into sort of what are considered SRE or site reliability engineering skills. Um, I did an SRE internship at Atlassian, and a lot of the the stuff that I learned there, um, there's a higher expectation there about being on top of uh, infrastructure and and how things fit together. I think that's also important in in a data role because, particularly data engineering, because again, you're you're facilitating, you're working at this uh, this lower level, and things like reliability become really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty useful. To pivot the conversation a little bit, um, what drew you to working at a company like Canva and what's it like working there? 
I had heard about Canva. I um, worked with, I, I did undergrad at UNSW, so sorry, not UNSW, UQ. Um, uh, I've already switched over in my mind. Uh, in uh, At UQ, and I uh, had been involved uh, quite heavily with the equivalent to CSOC up yeah, at UQ, UQCS. And in that role, I got exposed to Canva through sponsorship. So I dealt um, with Jess, who uh, leads university recruitment at Canva. And I the, the more they came and spoke uh, and held events and talked and like just, just the enthusiasm of the team, um, I, I guess I was really inspired by that, like the, the passion in particular, but also the um, just what they were working on. Um, and then, so, so I applied uh, and got an internship um, and I went down there, um, my, the, the secretary from the club and I uh, both got Canva internships, both went down uh, and they put us up in, in Newtown and we, we had an absolute blast over 12 weeks. Everything that you kind of assume looking at the company turns out to be true or better particularly the food, like you, you'll, you'll hear Canva people talk about the food and it's like, there's a reason for that. It's, um, this is my first exposure to sort of somewhat extended lockdown. And I didn't realize how used to the Canva quality food I, I had gotten until I came here and I'm, I'm looking at the ingredients uh, in my fridge and thinking, now, how, how do I make something like the chefs at Canva make? Like there's 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 no chance, um, but uh, it's just it's just a great experience and all of the like the social aspect inside the company. Um, I know like it's good to have friends outside of uh, tech and outside of your, your your company as well. But I think like having that and what Canva provides. There's there's all of these clubs. Um, so I'm part of like a, a lit, like a reading group and um, there's a tennis club and just like all of these sort of social things inside the company. Um, I don't know. It's still, it's still got those like small sort of startup vibes and they've, they've tried really hard to keep that. Um, and they, I guess they will continue to, it hasn't, Canva doubled in the, in the time that I was away in between me doing an internship and uh, coming back as a grad, they like they doubled in size, and they didn't really lose anything. Like normally, when a company undergoes that kind of expansion, there are like more substantial growing pains, and Canva just hasn't really suffered from that. And I guess like that's really encouraging for a company that I intend on staying at for a long time. It's it's just yeah, great to see how much effort they're putting into keeping the vibe the same um and i mean the, the the work too now when when i was a an intern um i i got to work on an absolute moonshot of a project um just because like there was a chance that it could help canva in the in the most sort of remote way um i, I built a, a transpiler that turned bash code into python because we thought that there was a chance that that could make our infrastructure repository more sustainable. Um, and like while we built it, it's, it's, it, it needs some work. 12 weeks, it turns out, isn't, isn't quite long enough to um, get something like that polished and ready for production. Um, but like 
I and then when I came back, like I spent the last couple of weeks because I uh, had had a couple of weeks spare at the end of the internship. I went and worked with data engineering, and that was sort of when I fell in love with the the problems that the the data engineering team, which was, I think, like less than a fifth of its size at the time. Um, like the problems that they were solving, the tools that they were using to do, like that was that was sort of when I knew uh, that this is what I wanted. And you don't always get to choose when when you come back um, as a grad, like where you end up. But I was uh, determined to to end up in data engineering, and at Canva preferably because it was I don't know even even just those couple of weeks at the end of an internship um, were a fantastic experience. Um, what do you think Canva's data team is looking for when they're hiring? Um, so like what sort of skills or personality traits or things like that? Um, I mean, Canva puts a big emphasis on what some companies call culture fit. And for us, it's like that's expressed through uh, like if you're a grad or like uh, coming in for an experience position, that's uh, a values interview that you'll do. And you'll talk about sort of like what you value and, and what you prioritize. And I think um, that that does a reasonably good job of finding the people, like just, just chatting to people for whatever it is, three, three interview, like three technical interviews and one values interview gives you a pretty good insight into uh, like what a person is like, how they solve problems. And I think like that that's a big thing is how they solve problems is like, do they consider that like do they get a, a minimal answer and consider themselves done or are they constantly pushing for um like the any sort of extension or had to solve more edge cases or uh actually just to test their their code um, those things are really important and it's not something that you see in a lot a lot of applicants i think the other thing is that you we want people to think about the problem before they start tackling it um, and this is something that I that I touched on in in the article that I wrote for CSE SOC recently, um, is that like those those first five to ten minutes should be all about working out what the problem actually is and not starting to program. Um, and I think we we recognize that at Canva in the interviewing process. Like if you get started too early without all of the parameters that you can possibly ascertain, obviously think your understanding of the problem develops as things go, but you really have to think about it first. And we, we want those people that are thoughtful enough to think about the problem before they start tackling it. Because when you're working with data, you can't afford to jump straight in. Uh, we, we spend a reasonable amount of time writing design docs for the, for the work that we do to make sure that we've considered the alternatives. Because uh, if you make a, obviously we, we, make, we make mistakes every day, we're not perfect, but if you make a mistake uh, in terms of like an architectural decision, just because you were rushing to get something started or get something done in the beginning, those, those mistakes can come back to haunt the whole team years later. Um, I think the thoughtfulness is, is a big thing. Um, uh, the data scientists have a more specialized uh, interviewing system that gets people across and like rather than doing uh, like a standard back end like two sum or whatever like a standard back end question um, you might actually get 
involved with uh, like reading something in with pandas and uh, developing some sort of uh, model to, I don't know, infer something or recommend something. Um, but in data engineering, again, the, the skills are pretty transferable with backend. So anything that you read about the, the backend hiring platform uh, through Canva, which I guess we can, we can link in the show notes, um, is, is applicable to data as well. Um, the only other thing, yeah, I would add is like being familiar with SQL is helpful, but not, not essential. Um, to do some database courses, it's always good to work out how that stuff works, even if it's boring as hell. Okay, um, so you're currently working your honors degree right now at UNSW, and I believe you're working on uh, quantum finite automata. So could you, um, I guess, explain that like we're five, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I normally have diagrams when I explain this because it's, uh, it's, it's easier to communicate and even I, like I struggled with it so much in the beginning. I, I didn't have a physics background. I did, I did honors last year um, before transferring from the honors component at UQ. And I, all right. So um, I, I, I had come across a paper about a quantum finite state automata um, in my research as a research assistant attached to the equivalent of the CSE school at UNSW um, doing automatic speech recognition stuff because this like quantum and like state machines in general have a, a special applicability to language recognition. Um, so I'd come across this paper and uh, this was a couple of years before I was even thinking about honors. And then I sort of thought about it more and more and did a little bit of research on my own and spoke to my boss's boss who was or uh, is a professor um, in ITEE at UQ, and she said, "Like I am, I I can supervise you for this, um, and you should, but you should also go and get this other researcher from the School of Maths and Physics who can like help with the the quantum aspect of it." Um, so um, these these two supervisors, um, Janet Wiles and Sally Shrapnel, um, and a PhD student on the physics side who explained to me when I was particularly dumb, sort of shepherded me through this process. Um, the, so if you, if you've done, um, a course on like theory of computation or sort of, uh, even just like the, the intro to, uh, systems i think normally covers like state machines like just basic classical state machines um where you have your your states and you have little arrows uh that change based on like you change state based on the input the quantum finite automata are a similar thing but instead of like circles with arrows um at representing the states your state is represented by something called uh a block sphere so you um, which represents another thing called a qubit, which is a classical equivalent of a bit. Now, the fact that it's a sphere and not sort of uh, an on or off one or zero bit is important because you can take any of the, any of the states uh, which are represented on the surface of the sphere. So there's a vector in the middle of this, this sphere and it's, it's pointing somewhere uh, and it points at the surface of the sphere and that that is a state when you measure this qubit it collapses and uh, it collapses down to a one or a zero and you repeat this experiment potentially thousands of times i know i did um, 
to, and, and that gives you a probability distribution, which tells you roughly where on the surface of the sphere this, this vector was pointing. Uh, and uh, this, what this does is it, it opens up the possibility for um, a lot more potential states and you can use that to solve particular problems. Now, quantum computing is massively overhyped and I wish people would stop it because I still have this like uh, disdain for buzzwords, right? But yep. um, there are particular problems so that, that can be solved by quantum computers better than or these, these quantum finite state automata um, better than the classical versions. So things like uh, language recognition, there are types of irregular languages. Again, that's a theory of computation thing um, that can be recognized by these QFAs uh, that can't be recognized by classical automata. Um, so that's, that's kind of cool. Um, and the other thing is that you can, there are cases where you can represent things that required linear state. So uh, they grew, like the, the, the requirement for the number of bits grew linearly with the size of the problem. Um, the, there are certain problems where you can just use a single qubit instead of uh, O to the N, you have O to the one. Um, and it's, oh, okay. it's, it's very cool. Um, and I, I got to play with these for a year and implement them on IBM's quantum computer in Melbourne and one in Spain. Um, and then like a week before my thesis was due, I got access to Amazon's Braquet service, um, which is devastating because like you, f you finally get access to this cool thing that you've been trying to for a year and your supervisor turns around and rightly, rightly says, no, you can't use it. You've got to finish writing the thesis. But yeah, it was it was it was a very cool experience. Um, honest honest isn't for everyone. I would I actively recommend against people taking honors unless they have uh, some uh, aspiration to go into academia, uh, even if it's only like you, you want to be a part time lecturer or something like that. That's still yep. justifiable. Um, doing it because you haven't found a job yet is kind of less like ideal um but i see a lot of i saw a lot of people falling into honors falling into phd programs even which is a three to four year commitment in this country um just because they didn't know what they wanted to do yet and i'm like please please for the love of god consider industry um because there's a good chance that it will make you substantially happier um mm -hmm. If only because like there's a certain amount of dignity that you sacrifice uh, in the academic life in having to like find funding, um, and it's 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 just traumatic process and the, the pressure to publish um, industry is great but that was that was my goal uh, I think setting out from uh, a couple of like degrees that I didn't end up using to going into CS and wanting to find out everything take the take advantage of everything um try all the opportunities i wanted to try academia which i like um the teaching aspect of anyway um mm -hmm. i wanted to try industry in terms of like really small startup which i did and medium-sized startup um which i did and then sort of large company which like atlassian is about as big as you can get in in australia in terms of tech um that i would want to work at anyway um so 
I, I try everything, please. Um, don't yep. don't don't just fall into it because it's easy, um, or because they tell you that it's a good career path. Um, just try for yourself. That that would be my recommendation. Uh, well, on that note, do you see yourself going into um, further research, like a PhD? I I definitely want to do a PhD. Um, at this stage, I'm looking at it like I obviously I need to finish honors first. I think I've got four subjects left, um, but I I want to do a PhD probably part time um, on, on the side of industry work because I lo- I like the getting things done aspect of industry. Also, being paid more than like well less than minimum wage is uh kind of nice um so uh yeah it, it's it's definitely on the cards uh, i have to find the right institution the right the right supervisor because uh, especially when you're doing it part-time that's like a, a suddenly become a six to eight year commitment um you you want to make sure that the person that you're uh, being supervised by and the team that you're working with uh, is someone that you can get on for the better part of a decade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're also working on some research with UQ. Um, what exactly are you working on? Um, so I work uh, on a project called uh, the Transcription Acceleration Project. Um, and we have one one core product that I'm like, or, or uh, tool that, that I work on called Elpis. Um, and Elpis is a wrapper around this uh, like various uh, automatic speech recognition libraries. So what we're trying to do is take the the power of these automatic speech recognition libraries and give that the power to produce uh, like text to speech um, workflows uh, or transcriptions to people um, anywhere for for anything. Uh, If they've got uh, training data, if they've got 10 hours of training data, then they can make a model um, and then they can they can run inference off it. And so we've we've taken what was a pretty gnarly. Well, uh, one of the underlying libraries is called Caldi um, and it's it's horrifying. Um, It's a million lines, uh, 40 percent of which are bash, 40 percent are C++. And the rest is like a mix of Perl and Python and some Ruby. Um, it's atrocious, um, but it's like very much a product of the like late '90s, uh, early 2000s sort of architecture. But they've kept they've kept iterating on it, um, and it's it, it is brilliant. Um, it's just awful for anybody to use, particularly if they don't have a computing background. So we've wrapped it in this nice UI that you run through Docker. Um, and then like it's just a web UI. You drag and drop your your audio files and the, the training transcriptions, and it will produce a model that, that you can then use to do transcriptions with. Um, we're currently in the process of taking all of that and producing a hosted version uh, as the, the center that funds all of this sort of wraps up at the end of this year. We'd like to be able to have this thing to hand over so people can run a hosted version or uh, spin up their own version because there are a lot of uh, data sovereignty issues around language data, particularly in Australia, uh, where we have uh, thousands of uh, local indigenous languages um, and different perceptions around uh, what's appropriate to do with that data or like whether it's appropriate to keep it in an S3 bucket or whatever. Um, we 
we've always had those users in mind um, because there's a good chance that those those languages will never see uh, support from like Google for speech to text. So we wanted to give them the ability to build their own um, or at least like run their own if we built it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. What do you think are like other practical applications your research might have? Um, so we also, in addition to the um, indigenous groups that we've worked with, we also work with uh, academics. Um, now, in linguistics, uh, the a lot of value is placed on transcribing audio data. So they go out, they talk to some people in whatever language they're speaking and then they come back and they transcribe that and uh, usually translate that to another language like English. Um, Now that transcription process for one hour of audio can take anywhere from sort of uh, five to a hundred hours of transcription time doing it by hand. Um, So we've seen um, researchers use this software and sort of take them from a uh, transcribing role to an editing role and it because they, they provide the the stuff that they've already transcribed and then run this new data through it it produces a transcription and then their only job is fixing any issues that are in the transcription so even if it's only 60 percent accurate which is reasonable for I don't know, say you've got 10 hours of data um, the amount of time that that cuts down on the actual transcription process that they have to do. Um, now as editors, they what might have taken them 100 hours to transcribe might only take five. Um, so there are like orders of magnitude increases just from doing a bad job, uh, let alone a reasonable job that we can sort of get with enough training data. Um, we can, yeah, we're seeing benefits in in that kind of application as well. Um, Is there any way that working in research has benefited you as a data engineer or like the other way around? Like, how do you use data in your research? I've been fortunate in my research that data sets have been made readily available to me because I was the person that could interpret the C++ and the bash um, when it came down to it. Um, that being said, you have to be mindful of your data set. I, for like a solid two years, was using this sample data set uh, and didn't, because it wasn't in English, I didn't notice that the produced transcriptions were cutting off the last word because of an off by one error for two years. <laughs> so I, I, I would have I run, I would have run this like uh, hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, so you, you've got, got to keep that in mind. But I think in terms of skills, a lot of the data scientists are academics. Um, like they, they, they come in with PhDs uh, in statistics or uh, mathematics or like bioinformatics. And they're applying the same kind of like research or exploratory skills to different problems. And I think understanding how to interact with academics is... Uh, like is a, is a valuable skill because they're, they're um, I don't know, they, 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 um, they often have like different ways of looking at, pro- looking at problems and uh, it, it helps to be able to relate to that a bit. Um, 
I think the other thing was that I, working working uh, as a research assistant, my first job was taking a bunch of scripts written by academics and sort of compiling them into uh, a documented, like good quality library for uh, data manipulation. Um, and I think that, that, that woke me up to sort of how varied the quality of uh, like programming background is, how varied like the, the motivations are for like things that matter to us as engineers, like uh, naming variables or um, like or laying out uh, parameters to a function or even just breaking up what is like a 200 line uh, thing that's all stuck in main uh, into like a series of functions um, aren't necessarily the priority for uh, scientists or academics. And that can take you by surprise. But by the time I... Uh, like obviously the quality is is much higher at Canva. These people have been in their jobs for a while and they've been in like training as data engineers and data scientists come closer together. Like we're sort of sharing the knowledge on like why these things matter. Um, but uh, I think it, it set expectations appropriately um, for like, again, like their, their role, their responsibility a lot of the time is being on the forefront, making do, do, from my perspective, doing the hard part in developing these models and finding parameters and hyperparameters that suit. Um, and I think it just helps to be able to, without judgment, apply all of the engineering stuff to that uh, and understand why they do things that way and what, what, what the trade-offs are. Um, but uh, yeah. So you've interned at a lot of different companies from Gamba, Atlassian to Patch Medical all the way in San Francisco. So um, what would you say is the benefit of interning at different places? Um, I think you like for me, it was getting a sense of uh, like what it's like to work in companies at different scale. I was I, I really needed to find my fit in terms of size and scope because you Inevitably, with size comes bureaucracy, and given the independence with which I've been blessed uh, uh, in my role in academia and in teaching and everything else, uh, I prize that that independence more than most mm -hmm. things. Um, so, if yeah, for me it was it was finding the the right fit, and I feel like. At the end of the day, I, I could have been happy working at any of those companies, but it was just a matter of experiencing them to work out which one fit me best. Now, Patched Medical was an absolutely crazy uh, experience because we were over there, um, and this internship was part of a uni program. So I'd go and I'd do like eight to 10 hours in the office, and then we'd go back and we'd do like networking, um, uh, like with like we'd, we'd go to the Uber headquarters and go to a talk or go to like an alumni meeting. Um, and like that would just be like every night almost. Uh, and then I'd come back and do research and work in the, in the hostel that we were staying at. And then I'd do club stuff. Um, so it's uh, like very close to burning out during that experience. But the actual 
work was really interesting um, and the the company was fantastic and, and particularly like Rob and, and Wei, they they were just like so supportive and when, when you're a company with like, what were we, five, six people maybe um, and like we, we came in and the first thing that we did was like put together the desks for ourselves. <laughs> um you 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 got you got real startup vibes and just like listening to rob like do the pitch for the company i must have heard it 30 40 times while i was there um but i never got tired of hearing it because he was so enthusiastic so charismatic um there's there's something about uh i could i could see like the I think with Steve Jobs, they called it like a reality distortion field, but there was no reality to, to distort here. It was just uh, like the the mission was that important to him and that impressive that it just like, yeah, you, you just never got tired of hearing it. Um, that was my small experience. And then um, I did Canva. I was like really impressed coming away from Canva again, amazing work, amazing people. Um, and then I, ever since I started, I think first year, what was, I started out in software engineering. Uh, we had some people from Atlassian visit and talk to us about Git and Bitbucket and stuff as part of a, a UQCS talk. And ever since that moment, I, I kind of wanted to work there. Um, and I'd gotten to know as, as president uh, at UQCS and then as sort of coordinating sponsorships after that, um, I uh, had gotten to know the recruiters there and eventually I got like this SRE position there. Um, and again, team was fantastic, lots to learn from, but I don't know, I felt, uh, I felt the weight of how how big the company had come and it's it's it probably wasn't a fair shake to Atlassian because it was uh, me comparing a uh, an internship held under sort of uh, lockdown conditions even if they weren't really locked down in in Brisbane but I don't know I I felt like Canva was a better fit um, which was which surprised me um, given given how much uh, I had looked forward to this Atlassian experience, but yeah, sort of and ended up coming back to, to Canva. But I think I, 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 I'd found my fit uh, at, at where Canva was in terms of like size and the bureaucracy that comes along with that. Um, and then, yeah, so going into this, um, into what was software engineering and became computer science, my goal was just try everything. So I wanted to try academia. I wanted to try tutoring. I wanted to try a small, medium, large company life. Um, and I think that it, when it came down to it, the, the reason that I'm so happy where I am is because I experienced those things and was able to make an educated decision. So um, what types of roles uh, do you think you've gained the most from? So like, whether that be in research or, you know, working in these um, startups? Um, like, honestly, so far, um, I think the thing that I've gained the most from uh, as, as a human being um, uh, was tutoring. Uh, there's, there's, something, there's something about tutoring, particularly for like core CS courses. So like intro to object-oriented programming or 
systems engineering um, so, or operating stuff, uh, operating system stuff, it it's there's there's so much value to be had, and you you learn the subjects in a way that you've never had to before because the students ask questions that you might not even have considered as a as a student yourself, um, and you're forced to either like. For me, the 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 act of admitting some that I didn't know something that sort of like fundamental to this course would always make me go and want to work out what the answer was on my own time. So I could go back to that student and say, "Oh well, so I did some research, and this is the answer to your question." Um, and you you don't really get that like in industry and in academia. A lot of the time, if people ask you questions that you don't know the answer to, it just your response doesn't really matter your like the actions that you take after don't really matter there's no follow-up um but yeah that and uh i think um the being at canva would probably be be next after that um again like just surrounded by really clever people learning so much at such a rapid pace um that i haven't really experienced before because of uh sort of just some, whether it's been external factors or just like I'm here now in person with people uh, that are so much cleverer than I am um, and they're so willing to like share that experience and walk me through things that I don't know how to do and there's no there's no judgment there's no expectation that I already know these weird and wonderful tools um, uh, it's it's also forced me to confront one of my biggest shortcomings uh, which is wanting to work everything out on my own because in industry you can't really afford to do that because there, there's there's a pace to be kept up with so you need to rely on people and you need to rely on being able to reach out to people and say oh can you explain to me like how to do this thing and what would have been six to nine hours of you fumbling around on your own with really poorly written documentation from Amazon or like it suddenly becomes like two minutes of them writing back a single command um, to, for, for you to plug into your terminal. Um, I think that's that's helped immensely. And I like I understand that like everybody's different. Um, exposure to academia and research as well, I guess, um, have also been particularly valuable for shaping who I am. Just again, on an interpersonal level, interacting with all of these academics from different places around the world. Um, it also like it, it opens up having these broad experiences opens up a network. And I think the, the network is so, so important. Um, because, uh, I don't know whether it's just being able to ask people, uh, to be involved in things or, um, being, being exposed sort of, sort of almost by surprise with opportunities like, Oh, you, you, you failed to get an internship um, at this company and they, uh, because you knew one of the recruiters, they reached out to you and said, um, would you like to apply for SRE instead? It's like, oh, okay. It's uh, the, the, the network from all of those things. Like you can build the, the, your network anywhere, but I feel like going for broad rather than deep is uh, a pretty solid way to go. Yeah, just for those um, listeners out there, uh, Nick has written an article about getting that grad slash intern role. Um, you can find that on our CC Soccer Media website. Uh, but um, 
Uh, Nick, uh, what would you say is the, um, or what are the main takeaways of the article for those who haven't read it yet? Um, I think uh, the the important thing like that I wanted to express first was that they like you don't need to have perfect grades or even necessarily particularly good grades uh, in order to get these kind of opportunities these these internships or research teachings uh, tutoring tends to go more by grades but um, yeah so that there are all these things that you can do to sort of stand out um, you can do, do personal projects and again like that's the one that's most within your power um, and you can you could start a personal project today a lot of the time it's just a motivation thing or well people say it's a time thing but I think it's more of a motivation thing um, but uh, yeah then tutoring um, work experience uh, club involvement um, it w was the big thing that shaped my my experience and my exposure and my building uh, of this network the most was uh, getting involved with UQCS um, and eventually sort of leading it for a year um, with a fantastic team. And I, all of those things you have to communicate. So the other big part is that you have to communicate what you've done. Um, there's a tendency to sort of undersell or for certain people to oversell um, but you you just need to communicate um, recruiters aren't idiots they're not going to be tricked by anything they they know what stands out they know what's impressive they know what com like what communicates uh, in good interpersonal skills yeah I, I I, I'm I'm reasonably proud of, of the article. Um, be, be thrilled if, if anyone goes and reads it. Yeah, it's, it's a really good article. So if any of you listeners haven't seen it yet, you should definitely go check it out. Um, on the topic of your uni life, we've heard that you started off completing a degree in science and commerce. And then after completing that degree, you moved to a degree in computer science. So what prompted the change? Um, so I, I, I technically started out doing economics arts, which is sort of a very wild departure um, <laughs> from everything. But uh, it, it's, it's, it wasn't as big a change as, as it sounds, because uh, at UQ, you can study psychology under arts or science. Um, mm. And so, so that, 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 that was one change. And then the commerce part was just a more general version of economics. Um, and it meant I got to study cooler things like derivatives um, and risk management, mm. um, which were my favorite parts of those. But I think it it came out of a my my the fact that I enrolled in those at all to begin with uh, was a mistake. And while I learned some skills, I I did a lot of statistics, um, which helps now. But the I. It was it was just not being exposed to the possibilities so i didn't know what i wanted to do really so i just kind of fell into what my parents did and then sort of fell into psychology because it was interesting and easy which is a terrible combination um because i mean we it it, it makes it easy to justify to yourself as you keep going um, that like oh this is this is okay even though it's not particularly useful now I'm all for like liberal arts 
education like you don't need to learn at uni what you're doing on the job but I, I had no idea like I wasn't I wasn't exposed to the possibility I didn't know that uh, computer science existed um, we didn't really have much guidance from school or even from home because my my parents were busy um, about like what the what the possibilities were um, so I, I fell into this thing and I kept going with it, um, just sort of going along, being incredibly mediocre, probably working too much and that impacted my grades. But it was like six months before the end of that degree, I took an online course just out of interest. Um, it was like 2015, yeah. Uh, so it was very, very early days of a platform called edX uh, which has subsequently become uh, much more popular. And they're, they're, the course that I took was uh, CS50, um, taught by uh, a Harvard professor called David Malin. And I, that was my first exposure to computer science, and I just fell in love with it. Um, it was fantastic, and I knew that this is what I needed to do. Now, it was terrible timing, because I had, I had six months left of this degree. Um, and... It, so I finished it because like, what do you do at that point? And then just immediately enrolled in software engineering because software engineering would allow me to do all of the software stuff and uh, as, as little of the hardware stuff as possible because um, hardware is not my, not my forte either. Um, so I went through and I did uh, software eng for whatever it was, three or four years. Um, and got more involved in the club um, and got more involved in just uni life and taking advantage of these opportunities in general. And uh, it was just a completely different experience, particularly in engineering, because there's, there's this like cohort experience that you get in engineering that you don't get in finance, you don't get in psychology, certainly. Um, that, uh, I don't know, you like you, you bond with people and even if they're not software engineers like because we were the smallest of the engineering cohorts um but even just the other engineers like it's great and they, they force you to do teamwork which for like the would-be computer science graduate like that's fantastic because you need that work is all teamwork there's there's very little uh in the way of like job offerings that will allow you to work without interacting with other human beings um so I, I, I took that teamwork experience away and then I got to like the end of fourth year because um, I had taken part-time, I got sick um, and uh, went on exchange and certain things slowed me down. But um, I found out that I had this opportunity to change into computer science um, from engineering. And because computer science was even less hardware again, um, and avoided me having to do subjects that I disdain with a passion. Um, like, uh, I don't know what it was. It was, it was going to be human computer interaction. Um, uh, I'd, I'd had some disagreements there and, uh, and then I think I also missed out on calculus too and a stats course that I really shouldn't have had to take because I think I, I tallied it up and I'd taken nine stats courses in <laughs> economics and wow. and psychology because psychology is like seriously nearly a third stats um 
so I, 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 I took that opportunity with both hands and like, I, I'm, I'm out of here now. I'd, I'd already done thesis though. Um, so I, I have this dangling thesis and I've got to, got to talk to people at, uh, the school of CSE, uh, at UNSW about getting that, uh, approved, uh, for credit. But, uh, I don't, I don't regret the change. Um, I knew that, uh, UNSW's coursework offering was superior in a lot of ways. There are, there have been some things that have taken some getting used to, certainly, um, but uh, it's it's been it's been a good experience so far, and I don't regret changing to CS or spending the better part of ten years in undergraduate education. Uh, though I wonder, like, how long that that uh, lack of regret will last when I see uh, my my hex uh, repayments on my payslip for the next eleven years. Would you say that psychology or commerce are useful to you now in like any way maybe the stats courses or something i yeah i mean well i i don't do a great deal of stats if i was in more of a machine learning role rather than a machine learning facilitation role then maybe but i i i appreciate that it made me like it gave me a broader experience i really enjoyed some of the higher level finance subjects at uq um, things like financial markets and institutions and derivatives and investment management and that kind of thing um, i feel like that's knowledge that everyone should have particularly if they're going into an industry where stock options are rampant um, but I, I i would honestly take the five years back um, if, if i could um, i uh, i I've, re I've realized in in retrospect that uh the, the the time is the most valuable thing um the thing that you can't can't really get back um mm -hmm. what advice would you have to like anyone on the fence about their degree decisions like if they're like not sure what they want to go into or like not sure if they want to change um enroll it's, it's a little bit harder in australia now because there's this tendency to name degrees but my, my advice would be the same as I'd give to myself. Uh, enroll in a generalist degree, a BA or a BSc, um, and try everything. Uh, so like take a subject from each. There are all these wonderful electives. Um, you can get almost a year out of them. Um, and you can just try everything and just like follow what you really enjoy. Um, it helps if there's a career prospect at the end of that, but uh, that shouldn't be your deciding factor. Um, you can make a career out of almost anything, in my experience. Yeah, just 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 try things. Um, don't oh don't don't do a double degree uh, unless you've got a good justification for it. Like again, <laughs> you you, Whoops. you yeah, um, <laughs> both of us. Um, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. You can you could like agree now uh, with with the with the benefit of hindsight that like i don't know th there's this tendency and i hear i heard it with the mentors in the the mentorship program earlier in the year there was this constant thing of like oh i chose computer science and commerce because my brother or my dad or i don't know my cousin's aunt's uncle's roommate <laughs> said that uh like there, there there were better job prospects and i was like oh god like please um, consider consider just like going finding which one you prefer because there's, there's nothing wrong with commerce um, it's it's interesting the obviously 
job prospects aren't as uh, I don't know uh, hyped at the moment as as tech is, but I they I feel like given a year's worth of industry experience versus uh, your double degree, you there's so much more value to be gained from industry for like 95% of people. There are there are exceptions if you are like what if you want to go into ML um, then doing a combined CS maths degree makes sense because you you need the math skills just as much as you need the CS skills. Um, while you can learn either of them on your own, uh, university is perhaps the easiest place to come to grips with like calculus and linear algebra um, in a in an introductory and in a like application sense. Mm. Um, did you have any expectations going into a CS degree and was the reality different from what you imagined? Um, I think it it was so different. It was so different to finance and so different to uh, to psychology because you you really you have you're forced to depend unless you're like some brilliant savant you you are really forced to depend on your peers um and you just it's it's that 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 cohort effect the fact that like at at uq in particular i assume it's the same everywhere but as as first year engineering students of any stripe um we were effectively bonded by trauma of how bad introductory engineering <laughs> subjects are. Oh. Um, and I mean, so some of that was just like first years being cynical, but some of it was just like flip classrooms are the worst. This is terrible. Why are you forcing us to work together? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Some some of those people that I that I worked with have become like good friends subsequently. And again, like you you lean on those people um and they become part of this this network um of people that you can reach out to and um i think the other thing that surprised me about cs was this the sort of internal culture wars uh, that that are endemic to cs in a way that they aren't normally like with finance students it's just them looking down on everyone else right um <laughs> <laughs> but in inside computer science there's just this constant like my language is better than yours uh why would anyone use javascript or why would anyone want to write c or like it's it that it did take me by surprise but um again you sort of you, you sort of fall in with the the cs club cohort and it just becomes the norm um, but I imagine like for anybody coming in or for anybody being shocked by that, it, it like, it, it's just not normal. Um, it's it, like, there's, there's, I don't know. I've, I've never seen that much division inside a community. <laughs> um, anyway, I, 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 I normally just poke fun at them like you. Uh, you've got to make light of it otherwise it's just sad Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah just one more quick question Uh, if you could um, give a piece of advice to a first year computer science or software engineering student uh, what would it be ooh Um, 
I'm, I'm opinionated about which subjects are important to CS students um, or should be important. Uh, it, like you, theory of computation and compilers, if they're optional, which they shouldn't be, um, you, you, sh you should take those. Um, they're super interesting and super important to sort of understanding how computers work. Um, I, I guess the other thing is like start, start exploring um start seeing what you like uh, as an individual and working out like which which route you want to go down which things you need to try to sort of get out of the way in order to make an educated decision um and then start preparing because uh it's so easy to go through like i i, I did it for six years um almost uh so going through all of like that first double degree and then even a little bit not not so much but a little bit of my first year of CS it's so easy to just go to class um, and that's not that's not what uni is about like go get involved with the clubs go and like work on your projects find work experience find tutoring experience like just be present I guess um, in in a way that like you're always mindful of like what am i doing why am i doing it what's this going to lead to like you don't you don't have to be single-mindedly thinking about your career but you do need to be thinking about like how to get to what you want to get to and i guess that could apply to any field but um given that the expectations for uh, a grad job in cs is everywhere except camp, but no, um, uh, is, is uh, ten, 10 years of uh, work experience. Uh, have You have to have written the Linux kernel from scratch and no. Well, like the, the expectations are a little bit ridiculous, um, but- Five years work experience. Entry <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like it, 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 we exaggerate and it's not, it's not really that bad, but uh, in order to make the most of this thing that you're sinking three years of your life and whatever it is, 25 grand um, or whatever the uh, post-deregulation uh, adjustment of that is um, into this, like, this commitment to computer science. Like, just, like, make the most of it. Take advantage. Do the, like make it not a massive waste of a big chunk of your life mm -hmm. and also don't be afraid to like leave you, just because you've done a year of uni doesn't mean you're you lose anything by deciding that this isn't for you um, there's been a big push to make like computer science accessible to everybody and what that's meant is again you have like parents pushing their kids into comp sci uh, if CompSci isn't the right fit for you, find out what is. Like, don't don't drop out before you've worked out what it is that you want to be doing. But once you've found that thing, go after it. Um, contra controversial as as far as like being the former president of a like programming society, but uh, just like you, th this this industry isn't guaranteed to make you happy or money for that matter um, you have to work for both of those things um, and even then it, it, it might not be uh, your sort of golden ticket to health happiness and prosperity okay that's that's some really good advice so that wraps up today's episode thank you so much Nick for taking the time to talk with us um, it was super interesting to hear about all your experiences. 
Um, also, thanks to the listeners for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Echo Podcast and we'll catch you in the next one. Bye for now.